good episode today we've got stuff on dress code we've got multiple fashion segments with logan we've got congress stuff we've got a great philosophy segment with mr mata some digital stuff and a review on the recent batman movie we will start off the episode with dress code exposure with danny and madison Bevan Schmer, B is in boy, E, V is in Victor, I, N, Schmer, S, C, H, M, E, R. Have you had any experience with catcalling? In college. Thankfully, not so much since then. I think cliche, but like you don't walk anywhere alone at night. You always go in groups and things like that. There was once when I was walking home, because it was like a block or whatever from where I was going, and I was like, I'll be fine. I texted my friend to let her know that I was on my way, and a car full of guys slowly drove with me and tried to pull me into their cars. I mean, like, that's more assault than catcalling, I guess, but, like, they were saying catcalling sort of thing. So was that your first encounter with catcalling? Yeah, I think I've been pretty lucky. I mean, like, talk to other femme-presenting people, but I can't think of anything, like, as explicit and blatant as that, for sure. I've had my appearance remarked on, but not, like, in a catcalling sort of way. I think the fact that they were doing it at night and they were doing it to a woman walking alone, to me, that tells me that they know that what they're doing isn't acceptable. Also, that they felt like they were probably going to be able to get away with it. I think there is very much... A culture of well I was giving you a compliment or this idea that people feel entitled not just men but people feel entitled to comment on each other's appearances and as a mother of a daughter like I really struggle with that right because I don't want people commenting on her appearance I want her people commenting on her intentions her accomplishments her efforts so it's been a struggle to head that off at the past and prevent people from making those comments to her it's almost impossible that's the first thing people say to young girls oh you're so pretty your dress looks so nice or your shoes look so pretty or your hair is so nice instead of any other comment about who they are how do you think that affects the development of students and children I don't have to think, like studies show, right? Like there's like a body of of research and science that shows that young girls and disorders and things like that. And so a focus on appearance we know has negative psychological and physical repercussions. Personally, have you had any negative experiences with dress codes, either handing them out or receiving them? In high school, I mean, my high school had a dress code where like no shoulder blades or whatever. And so I had to adjust how I dressed to fit the dress code. Personally, as a teacher, I've had to dress code kids who had explicit language on their shirts. Like they show up and it's got like a confederate flag or it's got a cuss word or it's got explicit references to alcohol or drugs. I've dress coded those. Those are usually like t-shirts that just have inappropriate things on them. But I can't think of a time that I dress coded someone for something other than that. I would say it's never happened, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Definitely not here at LEAD. Has working in schools made you look at dress codes differently or question how they work? Yeah, I would say when I was in high school, I accepted that there always was a dress code. And so I just accepted that that was, that must be for a good reason, right? Like accept a lot of things in life. But going through education classes in college, my master's in teaching, I'm taught for 15 years now. Most of the dress codes are aimed at femme presenting children. And it's mostly presented in the way that if you wore this outfit, it would be distracting to others. And that's a rationale that I disagree with because we should be teaching children to control their attention and to control their impulses and to control their own bodies, not teaching children that they're responsible for other people's reactions because they're not. Um, And so I think that the rationale for dress codes oftentimes is that like, We've always had it, we've always had one, but I don't know that that's enough to regulate the degree that dress codes usually try to regulate. So it's assuming that when young girls 
or femme presenting people dress in a certain way, they're being sexual. And that adultifies children. Because if you're 15, an adult looks at you and says, you look sexual, then that's the adult. That's not the child. And dress codes punish the child for thoughts and reactions of adults or other children. And I think that there's a much more productive conversation to be had. And I have had those conversations with adults that I've worked with when they've mentioned dress code issues, you know, well, does it interfere with their ability to learn? Well, no, but it just looks, then don't look. That's control your own body versus trying to control others. And again, there are, I think, things that are not appropriate for a learning environment like explicit language, references to drugs or alcohol, hate symbols. Those don't have a place in an educational environment. But fashion-wise, I think that that's much more a puritanical ideal than it is like a requirement for an educational environment. I think a lot of the pieces of the dress code takes away from educational time, and it shifts a focus away from educational activities, and I find that frustrating. I know that the admin in this building were simply presenting the district policy to us, right, and to you guys, and that's good because you need to know what it is so you don't get a violation. Again, short of something like I've mentioned before, I've never encountered a student's outfit that prevented them from learning or prevented others from learning. It's not a focus for me. But I do know that dress code and teachers that focus on dress code, that can remove the focus away from the educational environment. And statistically, we know that female presenting people and non-white people are more damaged punitively in discipline and removed from the educational environment more than others. And so if that's the outcome, then we really need to look at what, what's the point of the dress code in the first place. So you mentioned your daughter and how she's kind of affects the way you think about catcalling, compliments. So um, has your daughter had any negative experiences with dress code? Um, no, she hasn't had any negative experiences with dress code. I mean, obviously we're the ones buying her clothes, right? But she's never wanted to wear something where I've been like, no, you can't. You know what I mean? So it's like not a problem that we've had to encounter so far. She's 11 though, so I'm sure it's coming. You've only been here for a short period of time, mm-hmm. but have you heard of or seen any conflict between parents of students and the school itself? I haven't seen that, no. But also, to my knowledge, I don't know how much writing up for dress code happens, if that makes sense. So, it says that dress and grooming will not disrupt the educational environment. Mm -hmm. So, what dictates clothing that disrupts the learning environment? Sure. So, this is connected to freedom of speech for students, right? Freedom of expression, and that's First Amendment right. And so that's important. There's been a couple of different court cases. And so one of them is Tinker v. Des Moines. And in it, students were wearing black armbands uh, to signify a protest in Vietnam. And they got suspended. They were told to take them off. They said no. The principal suspended them before they even came into the school building. That went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court ruled is that that freedom of expression can't be limited unless it disrupts the educational environment. And so in the particular case of Tinker, they were stopped before they even came in, so there's no way to know if the armbands would have upset people. The premise the principal was working off of is that people in the building had had family members die in Vietnam and they would find the protest disrespectful, and so he preemptively suspended them. And so that's where educators are left, is that there is a compelling government interest in protecting the educational environment, right? but you don't know what's going to disrupt the educational environment necessarily until it happens, right? And the example I give students all the time is that if you had a shirt that made an explicit reference to women's breasts, right? Like that would, people would notice that, that would disrupt the educational environment. But you see people wearing like breast cancer awareness stuff all the time. And like there's those bracelets that say like, I heart boobies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and people wear that and it doesn't disrupt the educational environment. And so I think educators have to be very careful when they're making these dress codes to not assume a disruption in a changing student population, right? Like some of the stuff that students wear now would have probably raised eyebrows when I, 20 years ago when I was in high school, but it doesn't now. And so for the most part, if it went way out of hand into court or things like that, like the school would have to prove a disruption in the educational environment. And if it was just a teacher didn't like what the student was wearing, but they couldn't prove that there's any disruption, that's where schools can get into trouble, and that's why they have to be careful with dress codes. With the word disrupt and distracting, does that kind of fall in with that feminine bodies are immediately more distracting to boys and things like that? 
Um, I think the dress codes are based off of that maybe cultural expectation of what each gender should wear, right? And that is oftentimes, I think, why dress codes don't address male presenting people as much because there is no expectation that those students would wear something like what a woman would wear, right? Like, because a lot of times when these things were drafted, like that, it wasn't yet an issue. So the assumption was that whatever the guys are wearing is probably going to be fine. That's why the dress code focuses in on femme presenting people the way it does. And I think it is based off of a stereotype that women's bodies are inherently distracting. But again, you have to show proof of disruption of the educational environment. And I think, like I said before, a much more productive conversation to be had would be with the students who were distracted and saying, like having that conversation, why were you distracted? When you are distracted, how can you get yourself back on task? Things like that. I think like if what someone is wearing is enough (laughs) to distract you in your educational environment, there's probably a larger conversation to be had there than what the one person is wearing. So in the dress code, I mentioned that basically underwear and bra straps can't be visible. To what extent do you think that extends to? I think like there's part of me that has been brought up with that cultural norm, right? That like underwear should not be seen and things like that. But as I teach and as I uh, learn more about these topics, right, and educate myself, there's a couple different groups it penalizes. It penalizes young people who develop and mature and go through puberty earlier, right? It penalizes students who grow faster than their parents can afford to buy new clothes for them, right? Because oftentimes it's because the shirt's too tight or the pants are too low because the student has grown. And I think there's a socioeconomic piece of this that we don't talk about, right? Like kids wear the clothes that their parents can afford oftentimes. And so to say to a student, you have to be removed from an educational environment because your parents cannot afford the clothes that we deem to be socially acceptable. There's a lot of layers to that sentence. There's a lot of impacts on young people beyond just freedom of expression. And so I think when we start talking about cleavage or bra straps or visible underwear, things like that, you're penalizing the body of a student as much as you're penalizing the clothes because they may not have clothes that can support their bodies in the way that meets dress code. And to say you can't have access to the education that you're legally required to have access to because of the way your body has developed at this age, there's a lot to unpack there as well, right? So what would you personally want to see happen and like change within school districts, not just the Park Hill one, but all of them for changing the dress code and not having it be sexualizing feminine people as much? I think there's a lot of interesting examples of student-created dress codes. So instead of top-down from the admin, people who are of a, I mean, even I am, of a different generation than you guys are and have different expectations of clothing, this, we use a lot of words that are really dog whistles, like professionalism, right, appropriate. And oftentimes those simply reinforce the dominant cultural norms versus representing the actual norms and expectations of the student body. And so I've seen multiple articles about people who did like dress code protests, guys showing up to school wearing skirts or girls wearing things that aren't allowed by the dress code, right? And forcing the school to suspend, suspend, suspend and bringing attention to the issue that way. And that's one thing, but like what's more interesting to me is those instances where the admin then came to the students and said, okay, if this isn't an appropriate dress code, what is, right? Because obviously there is a line, right? It's a gray area, but there is a line. There are things that disrupt the educational environment. I named some of them. I think nudity would be another thing you could put on that list, right? Like it would be hard to learn if someone literally like had parts of their body hanging out, right? And so I think empowering the students to really reflect on that. I think a lot of times students' opposition to the dress code is an opposition to feeling like they're being controlled or being told what to do, right, rather than like a true objection to the idea of a dress code. But I think there's a really adult conversation to be had there where you say to students, all right, like you, especially at this age level, like you are about to go out into the world, right? Like let's think about how you're presenting yourself, right? What do you think is appropriate for this environment? Because what's appropriate for school isn't what's appropriate 
necessarily for when you're out with your friends or what's appropriate for school isn't necessarily what's appropriate for a job interview, right? And having those conversations with students about what they think the expectation should be and a conversation about what the dominant culture in the United States views as acceptable or unacceptable and then coming to a common ground together and student-led creation of dress codes, I think you would find more acceptance of it from the students and a better understanding of the purpose of it for the adults involved. And I think then that might have better outcomes. Do you ever think that maybe the school should not just only be teaching the students, but also the parents? Because I've had a situation where I had a bunch of clothes brought in for me after my house fire, mm -hmm. and I wore one of them the next day, and I got dress coded for it. Do you think that, <laughs> yeah, do you think the parents should be more aware as well as not just the students? I will say, I can't speak to, I don't have a student in the Park Hill School District, but when I register my daughter for the North Kansas City School District, I do have to check a box that says I have read the, I have access to an electronic copy of the student handbook and the uh, I have read it and I am responsible for helping my student fulfill those expectations. So again, like parents should have access to both a physical and electronic copy of the student handbook. So at a certain point it is up to the parents to educate themselves and involve themselves in the students' like education and schooling. Uh, we do back to school nights, we do parent-teacher conferences, Lord knows the district sends out communications uh, frequently. Um, and so I would say from my perspective as a parent of a school-aged child, not in this district, but I think in a similar district, the information's there. It's not hidden. If the school gave you those clothes and then dress coded you for it, that's an interesting example. It was, it was a fun day. Yeah, I mean, just had your house burned down. Why not add on to that trauma? So going back to like the cat calling slash mm -hmm. harassment, so have you ever seen that in the school? Yes, I've absolutely seen students make inappropriate comments to each other and when it's within my hearing, I speak up and I let them know that that's not an appropriate comment to make and try to explain to them why. I think a lot of times as teachers, we, uh, a lot of our classroom management training and stuff like that focuses on not escalating a problem in the moment and not embarrassing a student in the moment. And so I think a lot of discipline and correction and those powerful conversations happen after the moment. So it can be perceived that teachers aren't doing anything when really it's that legally we can't share discipline results with other children. Does that make sense? But I think there are some things like calling out racism or calling out sexism or calling out any other form of bigotry that do need to happen in the moment so that both the person doing it and the person who's the victim of it sees that there are adults watching and there are negative outcomes of that action. What consequences do you think there should be either given out by the school district or given out by teachers for if there was catcalling or sexual harassment in the hallways or in class? I mean, the student handbook already addresses sexual harassment, I'm pretty sure. I mean, the school has to have an anti-harassment policy in place to receive funding under federal law, for sure. And if you go to our school website, there's absolutely a place where you can report harassment like that. Again, I think that our system of detentions, ISS, OSS, right, like there's an escalation. It's a push-out policy. It removes students from the educational environment. It removes students from each other, from the community, from the relationships and culture that it developed in classes. And it is punitive in nature, which I think a lot of times then results in the student who is punished feeling resentful. And that's not a mindset in which you can learn or grow. And so personally, I think that punitive discipline as the only tool for educators causes a lot more problems than it solves, right? Like it might be viscerally satisfying, like someone cat calls you or says something sexual harassing and like friggin' five days OSS or whatever, right? Like that's, yeah, take that, right? But like, did that person learn anything from that, right? And it's absolutely not the student who's being harassed's responsibility to teach that lesson. Like that emotional labor does not go onto that student. It goes to the adults in the room, sit down and help either facilitate a conversation between the students or with the student who is doing the harassing to try to explain, this is how you're harming people when you do this, right? Like, and have those conversations about empathy and sometimes these sorts of things really are honest mistakes, right? This is how 
the people, the adults in their lives express affection or express admiration and they were simply mimicking that, right? Or they might know that when I say something like this, it is hurtful to the other person and I, that was my goal, to hurt the other person. In which case, then you have to have a conversation about you know, consequences, right? But I think if we jump straight to discipline, we miss a lot of developmentally appropriate conversations that need to happen before that, right? I'm not saying discipline never has a place in this, right? If you have someone who has had those conversations, is aware, has been educated, and still chooses to create a dangerous environment for others, I mean, there's those other people deserve access to the educational environment as well. So, but I don't know that it should be your first go-to. Now on to our first fashion interview with Logan. My name is Manish Sharito and today I am joined by Aaliyah, a student of LEAD. We will be discussing what fashion means and what it might look like and feel like to some people. How are you doing today? I'm good. That's good. How would you describe yourself and your fashion style? It's not really limited to like one look for me. Mm -hmm. I feel like my look is like a bunch of different things combined, I guess. I asked my friend's dad, and he said my look was 90s just because I wear Doc Martens, like, mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah, I guess it's just a okay. bunch of little things. Could you describe, like, the little things mm -hmm. for the... Uh, I love, like, layering, but mm -hmm. I don't have, like, the right... I don't know, I feel like I don't have the right clothing to do that, but I love how layering looks, and I love, like, reds, and I literally only wear like red and black just because like those are I don't know those are my favorite colors to okay. wear can you tell me about some of your favorite accessories and what they look like I usually wear like simple gold jewelry but my favorite accessories are usually like really glamorous shiny necklaces I love how fancy they make me feel Okay. What does fashion mean to you, specifically? Fashion to me is, like, everything. Because, I don't know, I feel like I wouldn't feel like me if I just came to school in, like, a hoodie and sweatpants. Which isn't a problem. But, like, I don't know, I feel like, for me, I wouldn't. Fashion's, like, a way to express myself and how I, you know... I don't know how I feel, I guess. How does dressing that way, like, make oh, you feel? Oh, it empowers me. Okay. I, if I'm wearing, like, an outfit that I'm like, oh my god, this is so cute, <laughs> then I will, you know, I'm probably going to be, like, super confident the whole mm -hmm. day. And I love, like, when people compliment you on it, it tells me that I'm seen in some way. Yeah. Do you receive any kind of hate for the way you dress? Yeah. Usually not from, like, my peers, but older people and the school. Actually, they've tried to dress code me, like, multiple times. Uh, yeah, I think they they think that I dress too provocatively sometimes. Okay. Any stories you want to share about it that you would be comfortable with sharing? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I've, like I said, I've got, I've almost been dress coded, like, multiple times, but... I'm kind of a pain to deal with when it comes to that because I don't really, I'm not going to change my clothes because somebody else doesn't like it. Yeah, but they, they like try to call me into their office and they're like, you need to like zip up your jacket because it's a lot. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Okay. What about outside of school? Outside of school? I feel like I take it up a notch when I'm outside of school just because I don't have to worry about, like, getting called down to the office about what I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's not going to be anyone there who, like, outside, I'm not, I know there's not going to be anyone outside who is like, why is she wearing that? You know they're not going to question me. 
for it. Can you see yourself designing any clothes for runway fashion or any future with fashion involved? I mean, I like if I had the opportunity, then definitely. But I don't. I don't know what I want to do when I'm older. But I do love fashion, so I feel like it could be possible that I would do something mm -hmm. like that in the future. I'm not sure yet, though. Like modeling or sewing? Oh, probably like sewing. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like I have a lot of weird ideas, I just don't know how to execute it. Okay. Um, yeah. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. of three fashion segments with Loverin. Here is the second. Hello, my name is Venice Sherido and today I am joined by Cypher, a student of LEAD. We will be discussing what fashion means and what it might look like and feel like to some people. How are you doing today, Cypher? I'm okay. Okay, that's good. How would you describe yourself and your fashion style? My name is Cypher Troutner. I'm a sophomore at LEAD and I my clothing styles fluctuate between masculine masculinity, femininity, and androgyny depending on how I feel. I tend to wear a ton of jewelry, mostly all black, and really big earrings. Okay. Can you tell me some of your favorite accessories and what they look like? I have this butterfly ring. It's blue and silver, and it's my favorite because it used to be my grandma's, who's had it since she was like 17. And then I really like my spiked choker, and my favorite pair of earrings is my baby head earrings. Okay. What does fashion mean to you? It's how I express myself. I dress myself for myself. I don't really do it for like the attention of others. Okay. How does dressing like this make you feel specifically? It makes me feel confident. Do you receive any kind of hate for the way you dress? My mom sometimes <gasps> slut shames me. Uh, I sometimes get made fun of by like other people behind my back, but I don't think it's too often, but then again, it's like behind my back, so I don't really know. Mm. Okay. Is there like any stories that you have that you would like to share about that? Oh, yeah. So, well, there's not like really any specific stories, but just things that have like happened on a regular basis. People will take videos or photos of me, um, sometimes grown adults in public. And it just makes me feel really uncomfortable. Like, I, like, it's creepy. Like, you shouldn't take photos of other people, even if they're dressing in a way that you're not used to. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you see yourself designing any clothes for runway fashion or any future with fashion involved? Nope. Why not? Because I don't know how to, and it's not a passion of mine. Okay. I think it's cool other people do it. That was great. Now on to our third and final fashion interview. Hello, my name is Phineas Sherido and I am joined now by Grace, a student of LEAD. We will be discussing what fashion means, what it might look like, and feel like to some people. How are you doing today? I'm okay. How would you describe yourself and your fashion style? I think my style is very different from everybody else's in the sense that I cannot decide, like, officially what I want to fit into, what category. So I kind of fit into all of them a little bit. Okay, categories as in? Like sometimes I dress more um, colorful and sometimes I dress more 
androgynous. I don't know. Can you tell me some of your favorite accessories and what they look like? Okay, so this one is the Gryffindor pennant. This one is from an anime, Black Butler. This one is, um, my dad got it in the Christmas gift that just came with it. I don't know, he gave it to me. This one is Kanzai. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And this one is Opalite. Okay. <clears throat> what does fashion mean to you specifically? Just expressing yourself. Okay. How does dressing like this make you feel? It makes me feel like I can show my personality without showing it. Like, <laughs> speaking about... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you receive any kind of hate for the way you dress? Probably. I don't... I, I receive compliments, but I don't really think anybody's been, like, gone up to me and been like, you look stupid. But they've probably thought that. Okay. So, like, no stories? Not, like, in, like, person, at okay. least. So, like, no stories of people, like... Well, I get looks for, like, my hair being vibrant mm-hmm. um, by, like, old people in, in the grocery store. But that's about it. That's the only thing. Okay. Why do you dress the way you do? I dress the way I do because I want to be comfortable. So I try to look be comfortable. But I also try to express who I am and not look like everybody else. Can you see yourself designing any clothes for runway fashion or any future with fashion involved? Maybe. I don't really know how good I'd be, but it doesn't seem like I'm not uninterested. So like, would you rather sew like a piece of clothing together? Mm-hmm. Like I like designer. sewing. Okay. Um, I don't know if I could like come up with like an original thing though. Would you want to model it? Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you a lot for your time. Of course. next segment we have is philosophy with Devlin and Mr. Ryan. My name is Daniel Mata and what do you do? Teacher at Lead Innovation Studio and teach AP Psychology along the lines of emerging leaders, design thinking, as well as sociology and, and a variety of research classes. So can you give us a brief overview of what psychology is and what kinds of things you have to know? So psychology is the study of brain and mental processes in their connection to individual behavior. So the focus is on individuals and their thoughts, feelings, emotions, and the connections to the behaviors that they choose to make um, on a daily basis. Do you think psychology and the way we make decisions comes more from nature or nurture? Um, well, it's definitely a combination of both. Um, I don't know that I'd be willing to put a percentage. The research definitely shows that there are inherent mechanisms in the way our brain is structured that cause us to think in particular ways. However, our reliance on those structures and the different strategies we use to make decisions is very heavily influenced by the experiences that we have in life. So there's definitely a contribution from both sides. So do you think everything in our world can be explained by science and logic? I think at some point the the reality is no. There's always going to be a nature of mystery. Um, I don't know that we'll ever be able to get to to a conclusive causal understanding of all, uh, specifically, especially, mental events. So as a result of that, then that leaves human interaction with some measure of mystery, potentially forever. But do you believe that there is anything more? Not that necessarily there always is going to be a mystery at the frontier of science, but that there are things, even if we fully comprehend it, say, for example, do you think there is a soul. There's anything unique about living things. Um, 
I do, I, I'll be, I'll be honest, like getting into sort of the philosophical nature here, I, I would consider myself a dualist in terms of, I do think that there is a measure of separation between what, whether you want to title it the soul, whether you want to title it like in Hindu traditions as like the higher intellect, the mind in, in, in a very sort of sign, not the brain, but the mind that there is sort of differing layers between that and the physical reality, the connection to our body. Do you think that this connection dies with the body or do you think there is anything after death for us? I think in some way, shape or form, I think that there is a measure of, if we want to call it Jungian archetype of sort of a collective consciousness that the the knowledge, the the experiences, the properties of the mind are in some way, shape, or form shared through sort of a collective conscious. Whether that means we're reborn and a measure of that collective consciousness is now tied to whatever rebirth or whether that is just a continually building consciousness that humans have the capacity to tap into, that I don't know the, the answer to. Do you think that if there is any sort of continuum to our consciousness, that there would have to be a higher being to facilitate it? Whether or not there's a higher being, that I don't know. I think that there is some type of force that guides that collective unconsciousness, whether that is sort of a a godlike archetype or more of, again, thinking like kind of a Taoist nature of the Tao, the connection between things. Um, sort of a an energy force. I do think that there is some measure of connection there, whether or not that it's being guided by some higher being. So humans are a cooperative species, and yep. that is why we were able to conquer our planet. What do you think our goal is? And I don't mean our single goal in life to maybe reproduce, to be happy. I mean, as a species, in the greater scheme of the universe, what are we working towards? Is it colonization, eternal prosperity and peace? Like, what are our goals? You hit on sort of the most fundamental, right? The reproduction of the species, and we get into that. I think a major goal of, of humanity is understanding and purpose. And I think a lot of it is to identify what is the purpose for humanity in the universe. There's a lot of potentials for what that is. And I think kind of what you're hinting at here, like this idea of understanding and, and whether it's the acquiring of understanding, the passing of knowledge and understanding, or just like discovery itself, I think that that's probably the primary purpose uh, of the human race. What do you think will happen when we meet our purpose? If we meet our purpose, do you think we'll get bored or find a new purpose? Or I, I just think there's there's too many, there's an infinite number of potential discoveries to be made. You know, we, we, we've, we've not yet truly discovered everything that there is to know earthly, right? Um, we, we look at the situation where we know more theoretically about space and our galaxy than we do the oceans and 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 the 70 percent of the, yeah, the we, earth that's covered in water I, th there's i think there's just an infinite level of discovery that is capable especially when you consider the expansiveness that is the universe that i don't know that it would ever be possible for humans to to reach a point where there's nothing left to discover do you think we have the right to the universe because so far we are the only living thing we found and so we are the only living thing that can put a stake in it so does that mean we own it uh that's an interesting question just because there's <laughs> there's sort of two two aspects to it at least in my point of view kind of understanding the psychology of ownership so on one hand your question is very indicative of the way humans think about ownership the concept of ownership this idea that when you reside there when you are in a space that that space is yours right that that we own the the seats that we sit in while we're sitting in them in in that very very basic respect i think the answer is yes because wherever you are in a physical space you are owning that space because that is the location of your physical body as far as ownership as in do we have the expressed freedom or ability to do whatever it is that we please from a behavioral standpoint, um, I would argue no, um, because in no situation do we ever fully have 
that freedom to to do anything and everything that we want. That's that's part of the the social nature that you're you 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 mentioned earlier. We are we are social creatures. As a result, we give up freedoms. We give up rights, knowingly, unknowingly, um, for protections, for connection, for uh, the establishment of bonds and attachment and love and all of the things that make us a communal species. So in that respect, no, I don't think we have a, a right to ownership or do, do we own the universe by no means. Um, however, you know, when we're on Mars, if, if we are there, the space that we are occupying, yes, it is, it is owned by humanity until we move from that space to which that point it is no longer owned by humanity. Do you think there is other life? I, I'll be honest, like personal belief, absolutely. It's hard for me to imagine that there that we are the only sentient beings um, in a universe as expansive as we know. And again, we don't even know the bounds of, of said universe. Um, so it, it would be hard for me to believe that we're the only sentient beings in the entire universe. Our best estimate is about 90 billion light years in either direction. Right, like... It, it would be hard-pressed to say that we're the only sentient beings. And how do you think it'll go when we meet others? It, it very much, I think it depends. Uh, I guess the word that comes to my mind is, is, is the culture of whatever species, whatever other sentient species and the experiences that they've had. I also think it depends on how contact apparently is made, right? Like, are we the ones going out and contacting or is someone coming here? Um, because obviously... Uh, if if we're being honest, right, a lot of psychological, sociological phenomenon revolves around the, the perception and expression of this idea of power, right? The idea of someone coming or or a species coming to Earth puts them theoretically in our mind in a in a power position because it is not something that we are capable of doing. They have referential power and potentially coercive power because they have technology and or things that that we don't possess that allow them to to make it that way uh and vice versa if that makes sense so i think it it, it very much depends upon how that interaction and where i guess maybe is the other part of it where that interaction occurs how would you quantify someone with a successful life um i guess for me i would quantify it as they would have to quantify it i mean only they can only an individual can can truly know whether or not they've identified their purpose, their role, their vocation, their dharma, whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think for an individual to to be able to understand that they've lived a good life, you're you're looking at someone who is is consciously aware of their dharma, their their vocation, whatever it is that they're supposed to be doing, um, and someone who is satisfied in the development of the knowledge and either the passing of that knowledge, the codifying of that knowledge, um, but the ability to, in some way, shape, or form, pass that knowledge on to others. Well, uh, I'd say this was very insightful. <laughs> I got some pretty good information on that. Good. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. From philosophy to technology, here is Digital Age by Antonio. Metaverse, NFTs, and crypto. I'm sure most of the people listening have heard about or maybe know a little something about these words and phrases. But if you have no clue what the heck I'm talking about, here's a basic introduction. My name is Antonio Rivera and I'm a senior here at LEAD. Today I'm going to share with you a basic introduction about this new digital age. At the end of all my talking, I will be asking questions and talking to a teacher here at LEAD who is very familiar with all this stuff. The metaverse is a shared, immersive virtual world in which players that are usually represented as avatars can interact with each other, construct experiences, and create in-world objects and landscapes. Metaverses typically have their own economies and currencies in which users can buy, sell, trade digital real estate, items, avatars, accessories, and more. You can experience the metaverse via a computer, virtual reality, headset, or smartphone. Now, an NFT stands for a non-fungible token. NFTs are digital items that can be bought, traded, or sold online. These items are non-fungible, meaning it cannot be copied or substituted. This blockchain is used to certify ownership of the NFT. 
To simplify, if someone owns an NFT, it can't be copied and can't be owned by anyone else. NFTs can be a variety of different things. They can be plain pictures, GIFs, sounds, almost anything. Snoop Dogg just recently released his own NFT project, and it's an album. It has audio and video elements. Now crypto. Crypto, also known as cryptocurrency, isn't a very new thing, but has recently been on a lot of people's minds. There's a few different types of cryptocurrencies, such as Ethereum, Litecoin, Cardano, Polkadot, and probably the most well-known, Bitcoin. Cryptocurrency is a type of online currency that can be bought, sold, and traded. The prices of cryptocurrency can change over time. For instance, back in 2010, one Bitcoin was worth 0.0008 of a dollar, meaning that it could be bought at just eight hundreds of a penny. Now, one Bitcoin is worth over $43,000. Buying, trading, and selling is like buying stocks on a stock market. If you can predict the right choices, you can get rich easy. To sum it up, it's a digital currency. It does seem that people are more interested in stocks than cryptocurrencies. About 145 million people own stocks in America, while about 106 million people around the world use cryptocurrencies. Also, roughly 360,000 individuals currently sell or buy NFTs. Things are changing in our growing world, our growing society and economy. With COVID, we saw people working online, going to school online, and it makes me wonder what else will be online. And now, an interview with one of Leeds' teachers. I'm here with Leeds' very own teacher, Mr. Fullerton. Here, he's going to answer some questions I have and give his opinions on the subject. Thank you, Mr. Fullerton, for being here and being on the Leedcast. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here. So, my first question is, how invested are you in this digital space? I'd say fairly invested. A little dabbling of it. Some NFT stuff, particularly with, like, the uh, famous sports, like NBA Top Shot, etc. Gotcha. And how far do you think the metaverse will grow in advance? Well, I think I think if it, if it follows the same path of kind of people are predicting it to kind of parallel what the internet kind of looked like, I think it could really take off. I think it's a lot of uh, kind of like the new frontier, kind of the next step where people really advance technologically. I think it's an exciting time. And in regards to the metaverse, is being connected and doing everything online a good thing? And could a digital world where we're all connected to servers happen? It's interesting. It's interesting. Historically, over time, the more people get connected, you always have kind of a bump in uh, new invention and new technology and new commerce and new wealth, etc. But the interesting thing is, is that as people get more connected, sometimes the world gets a little less connected because you can really kind of pigeonhole yourself into a very niche environment which I think is in development and time will tell what that looks like. But, you know, as a history teacher, as people become more connected, kind of the interesting inverse is people become a, a little less connected as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that all kind of gets unpacked. Do you think that cryptocurrency could become the main type of currency in the world one day? Oh, I definitely think it could. It's just tough. It's just tough because it, it can be so volatile. Historically, we've seen whenever currency is not really backed by a very strong connector type of backbone, um, you can see everything kind of fall apart in a big way. You see several... 19th century kind of economic depressions in the United States uh, where people over speculate on currency as well obviously the Great Depression as well the over speculation of currency and similar similar types of uh, investments can really tank the economy however I think that I think that's kind of going to be the biggest hurdle for uh, kind of crypto is is what is it actually worth what is that what is the actual backing and can everybody get on the same page of like what the actual backing of currency is. Do you think that the digital age will affect global warming with the way we currently produce energy? Or do you think that our environment will suffer in the future because of this digital age? Interesting. That's an interesting question. I think I think time will tell with that. I do think with the introduction of new technologies, there's always going to be maybe a way to make cleaner energy and to be more sufficient at a more environmental friendly rate. However, again, historically, whenever you have an influx of new technology and an influx of new currency, sometimes can people can get a little overzealous and typically the environment uh, has suffered as a result for example uh, turn of the 20th century industrialization uh, you have a lot of issues with factories uh, releasing a lot of pollutants into the atmosphere um, also whenever you have uh, kind of pre-dust bowl whenever the United States is really um, Essentially feeding the entire world as a result of World War One, you have a lot of overproduction of wheat in the Great Plains. Uh, and in turn, that really, really harms the soil um, and creates the, the environmental catastrophe known as the Dust Bowl. So it's always interesting. People, people can be a little overzealous. Sometimes uh, 
economically and trying to push for commerce. And sometimes the environment can be really affected by that. So I guess I guess time will tell. Time will tell where that really heads. And final question: Do you think that security could be an issue with this new digital age? Totally, totally. I think that's I think that's going to be one of the biggest uh, kind of next generation real big issues of of the United the United States and the United States government is going to have to face is how how can we be secure uh, in a digital age because people are really good at uh, hacking and kind of digging into these things. So. Um, what does security look like? What do constitutional rights look like in a digital age? Um, I think that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles that the country faces in the next 20 years, to be honest. Well, Mr. Fullerton, thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for being here. Yep, thank you for having me. Now we are on to our final segment of this episode, the Batman Review. I hope you enjoy. Who are you? I'm Vengeance. Hello. I'm Zane. Today I will be reviewing The Batman. Don't worry, there aren't any spoilers. This movie takes the superhero movie genre in a new, innovative direction. From start to finish, this movie get me on the edge of my seat, even with its three-hour runtime. Matt Reeves creates a grim and dark environment perfect for the corrupted Gotham in this movie. The Batman in this movie is a more grounded and gritty realistic skill set which showed a vulnerability in the protagonist that is lacking by almost every other movie in its genre. The main antagonist did not have any far-fetched powers, just insanity, riddles, a hammer, and diversion, which set up it's a cinematic storyline and plot. This movie doesn't show a Bruce Wayne that's a happy, rich, public figure. Instead, it shows a sad, rich, lonely, vengeful Bruce Wayne, fully invested in his crime-fighting persona, hiding from the public eye. But he is kind of a weirdo. All the side characters in this movie are compelling and leave me wanting to learn more about them. If you haven't watched this yet, run to the theater. Overall, this movie is incredible. 10 out of 10. This was our last segment on this lead cast. I hope you enjoy your listen and tune in soon for our next episode. Bye.